The sounds of success vary from person to person. Over to second in time on the first double play. Success sounds like this to a Credenz soybean grower. When you pick Credenz, you get a precise variety that fits your field. A variety built to work in your soil type and conditions with targeted traits for local pest and disease pressures. Earning the satisfaction of a successful soybean crop, that's smart. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day, and Merry Christmas to you. Here's what we're going to be talking about on today's program. We mentioned this a lot yesterday. Good news, finally, on the trade front. We have that uh, deal with the U.S. and Japan done, it looks like. It's been approved in uh, Japan, so it should take effect first of next year, at least phase one of that deal. We're going to talk about it with Floyd Gabler with the U.S. Grains Council, the significance of that, and also take a look at some other key markets around the world, some of the market development work that's going on. We are still waiting for an announcement from the White House on the RFS and reallocating lost gallons and those issues that have been going on for some time. And now we're hearing that White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow is developing a new plan to bolster biofuel blending requirements. We're going to talk about that with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association on today's program. And then we're going to have some outlook for the uh, for the beef market. We're going to talk with Don Close, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. All that coming up on today's program. But first, we're going to start with a story that you probably saw or heard uh, recently that got a lot of people's attention, that being there could be a potato shortage and it could lead to uh, higher prices for staples like french fries. That gets people's attention. So let's get the, the, the real story here, just what's going on. We're joined now by Blair Richardson, CEO of Potatoes USA. Blair, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So was the headline misleading, or just what is the uh, supply situation for potatoes and, and those products we love so much, like French fries? Well, I, certainly not an entirely misleading headline. Uh, I think that it's just indicative of the growing demand for potatoes in all forms in the United States as well as globally. For the last three years, or, or even before that, we've been seeing increased demand as people have been learning about the nutritious values of potatoes and and have kind of changed their opinion on potatoes. It just became more of an acute situation this year when we had some severe weather problems during harvest or right towards the end of harvest in some areas like um, Idaho, North Dakota, Canada, and a few other places. Um, that's kind of created the, the kind of the concern this year. So, yeah, weather issues, which impacted really all of agriculture this year. So uh, should we be expecting uh, higher prices as consumers uh, this year because of that? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that the consumer will see this um, as of this point in time. Uh, as you know, agriculture is very efficient um, here in the United States. We figure out ways to keep food prices low, sometimes at our own detriment um, when farmers have to take um, prices that are below the cost of production. Uh, but, you know, the systems that we have in place here, um, we will allocate potatoes um, throughout the United States, and I would doubt that you would drive up to your favorite fast food 
restaurant and not be able to order French fries um, this year. Yeah, shouldn't should not expect we're going to run out, right? I don't think we'll run out. Yeah. It may be tight, uh, but we won't run out. Okay, let, let's talk about production. I think most people, you know, if you say potatoes, they think Idaho. But as you mentioned, uh, states like North Dakota, that's, that's a key uh, potato-producing state, and they've certainly had more than their share of weather challenges this year. Oh, they sure have. Many of these um, regions have had some very difficult challenges, not just in the potato production regions, but with other crops as well. It's been a difficult um, year. Um, but, yeah, we grow potatoes in all 50 states of the United States. Um, certain potatoes grow in certain states um, better than others, um, but market demands um, dictate what's been, what we bring to market, and whether it's a fresh table stock potato or a frozen French fry or dehydrated potatoes or, or potato chips, you know, we, we uh, pride ourselves in being able to get those potatoes to the consumers. We're talking with Blair Richardson, CEO of Potatoes USA. Now, you alluded to this earlier. Demand for potatoes and potato products continues to go up? Yes, we've, uh, we're experiencing a, a very um, good period of demand here for potatoes, and it's largely driven just by, um, you know, kind of a change in perception. There were many years where potatoes were kind of lumped into a negative perception with the Atkins diet and some of these other fad diets. And as research around the globe has um, come to have great, shed greater light on the nutritional benefits of potatoes, we've really learned that it's the complex carbohydrate, not just a simple carbohydrate like sugar, but it has um, seven of the ten nutrients we lack in the American diet in one um, vegetable. So it is America's favorite vegetable, has been for the past three years, and is growing in popularity. And we're really excited about where the future for potatoes are here in the United States. Are more people growing potatoes or are we seeing fewer producers but larger operations kind of give us an overview of the industry well unfortunately it's it's similar in structure to most other commodity um, categories in the united states we're seeing a continued consolidation that's forced on um, agriculture in the united states primarily because of the rising costs and equipment and labor and and all the other things that you have to amortize across a a larger uh, farm base so um, same things happening here as you're seeing in other categories. And uh, while we'd love to be able to, you know, continue having all farmers um, enjoy the opportunity to, to grow food in the United States, I think it's just a challenging time. We talk a lot about trade and exports and their importance to agriculture. What about for potatoes? Is there a big uh, export market for potatoes? There is. We export about one out of every five rows of potatoes um, here in the United States, so about 20%. Um, primarily in the frozen um, potato category, that that's what the, the general global trade is. But the global demand for potatoes has been growing even more rapidly than the demand here in the United States. And um, many countries have been have recognized this and have invested in um, fulfilling that demand need. So, you know, the the outlook for potatoes is strong um, right now. We we have uh, some very serious challenges, especially in some regions. Um, and hopefully, Mother Nature won't throw another. Um, twist to us this year and we'll be able to get back on track so are you is your industry impacted by these trade tensions and issues that have uh, been such a big part of agriculture this year yes it, you know but that's certainly a frustration i certainly we're happy to see it, that the japanese government passed our uh, our negotiate or approved the negotiations that our administration had worked out with them um, you know it would have been nice to have had that 
from you know two years ago, um, but we will be able to catch up um, in Japan. That's our number one trading partner um, internationally with potatoes. Um, but there are a lot of other markets that we need to get involved with um, in, a, in, a, in a very consolidated and, and focused manner on our trade issues because we have some unfair trade practices, especially in, in Mexico with potatoes, where they've been blocking the import of potatoes um, past the 26-kilometer border zone. Uh, for the past 20 years. All right, so uh, supplies tighter, but we're not going to run out of potatoes this year, right? Or next year? I, I, I don't think we'll run out. It, we will. It will be tighter, and we may notice a little bit of an increased price this spring um, as we kind of transition between crops at the, at the grocery store. But shouldn't be anything that's not worthwhile. All right, Blair. Thanks for the uh, the update and the overview. And appreciate it. Yes, sir. You have a good day, and thank you for having me on. All right. That's Blair Richardson, CEO of Potatoes USA. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Some measure success by Italian suits, corner offices, and luxury yachts. Farmers measure success differently. It's breathing fresh country air taking care of the people you love, and knowing how to measure success in your soybean acres, that's smart. With Credenz Soybeans, you get a precise variety bred to fit your acres. And that Credenz variety comes with agronomic expertise and local insights from your BASF team. So plant your sign of success. Talk to your authorized Credenz retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And joining us now is Floyd Gabler. He is Director of Trade Policy and Biotechnology for the U.S. Grains Council. We're going to talk about the approval in Japan now of the U.S.-Japan trade deal. Floyd, thanks for joining us. Tell us about the significance of this deal. Certainly welcome news in a year that's uh, had a lot of challenging trade news. This has been a bright spot. Uh, yes, it is, Mike, and, and thank you for having me back on. Uh, yeah, this uh, you know agreement uh, you know was was necessitated by the fact that uh, we withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and so the provisions that uh, we uh, needed uh, uh, are now you know we're, we're in jeopardy, and so we've spent the last year. Uh, renegotiating that agreement, and you know, thankfully uh, we are at a point here where this agreement has been uh, has been approved by both uh, the U.S. and uh, and Japan, uh, and will go into effect uh, on January of 2020. Uh, this is an important agreement agreement because it's a strong critical market. Uh, it's the second uh, largest market for U.S. grains in all forms, affecting feed, livestock, starch industries. Uh, And it helps, you know, it concludes provisions that will put us on a level playing field with the other TPP uh, countries and the European Union, who have a a trade agreement that's already in place with uh, Japan. Floyd, uh you sound like you might be on a speakerphone. If you are, could you switch to a handset? We might hear you a little bit yeah, stronger. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that sounds better. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so does this 
get us what we would have had with Japan in TPP, more or less? Uh, how, how does it compare? Uh, it's you know it's pretty much on on the same track. There are a few discrepancies uh, <clears throat> that uh, that were in TPP that uh, you know were not in this agreement, um, but uh, you know. Uh, uh, the opportunity to pick up those remaining provisions uh, will occur when we get into the second uh, phase or round of these negotiations, which should uh, begin uh, early next year. Some have said that next phase will be tougher. Uh, what what will be in that second phase? You think? Well, that will that will be more along the lines of, of trying to do a comprehensive trade agreement, much as like we have with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. So it'll address all the other issues that were in TPP, uh, <clears throat> and particularly important for us is things like uh, improvements in the sanitary, phytosanitary chapter, uh, you know, we had biotechnology provisions that were included in TPP that we will want to see in there, but it it, it come you know it would encompass the uh, you know the whole broad spectrum of of what a trade agreement uh, would cover, including things you know, not only for goods but services, deal with intellectual property, environmental, labor, those kinds of issues. So how soon will Phase 1, will we see the impact of Phase 1, and what commodity or commodities might uh, see the, the earliest gains from this? Well, I think we'll begin to see them uh, fairly quickly, uh, and the industries that will benefit the most uh, will primarily be the, the livestock industries, uh, particularly uh, the beef, uh, the pork sectors, uh, but also the dairy sectors, because they are the groups that have most heavily been impacted because, uh, you know, the drop in tariffs that they achieved under TPP was also provided to the European Union and, of course, the, the TPP member countries. And so they were, you know, already uh, obtaining the benefit of the lower tariffs uh, this agreement puts those tariffs and accelerates those that decrease, so it's on the same level playing field. So, I think we'll, you know, in short order, see some uh, improved uh, numbers, particularly from those industries. For our industry, uh, particularly the corn sector, you know, we've uh, we've had access, uh, duty-free access, uh, for some period of time, uh, and as well as other. Uh, things like uh, our dried distiller grains, et cetera. We're talking with Floyd Gabler with the U.S. Grains Council. So, Floyd, this gets us back with Japan to where we would have been roughly with TPP, but we obviously there are those other nations that we would have been joined with as well in TPP that we're not. Are any of those markets, Are we? how are we doing with those other markets uh, being at uh, a disadvantage as not having trade deals with them? Well, uh you know, one of the the key benefits and and uh, reasons beyond having uh, Japan in this agreement was was the other countries, particularly uh, Vietnam. Uh, you know, Vietnam is is a fast growing uh, economy. Uh, you know, our ex-
economic modeling suggests they you know it's going to be one of the top three markets uh, going into the into the future uh, and so you know we I, we would have a lot better access right now particularly on you know we're dealing with a lot of non-tariff bearer non-tariff uh, issues that are complicating our efforts in in Vietnam right now as well as some market access uh, you know we they have a tariff on corn that would have been eliminated uh, and that would have put us in a more competitive advantage uh, in that market just for for that specific product like that so that's why it's important that uh, we do have this uh, USMCA agreement uh, ratified because those provisions were built off of what is in the you know, TPP uh, legislation or agreement and uh, we'll need uh, you know our ability to secure a bilateral agreement with any you know Japan or any other country is going to be predicated on our ability to demonstrate that we can pass USMCA. How do you view Vietnam, the potential of, of that market for the U.S.? Uh, well, again, you know, from from our vantage point, we see it, uh, you know, a, a strong market because of their, you know, it's already become the largest uh, uh, feed market in, in Southeast Asia, out, you know, excluding uh, Japan and, uh, and Taiwan. Uh, and we see it as a viable market, growing market for ethanol. Uh, and uh, I think you know our our livestock and and dairy uh, friends uh, also view uh, Vietnam as having strong market potential. Again, it's a very strong, growing market. It's got a you know the youngest amongst the youngest population of any country in the world. Uh, uh, and a growing middle class. And finally, Floyd, in this year of so much trade turmoil and trade wars and tariffs, uh, when you look back at 2019 from a grain to export uh, uh, picture and viewpoint, how would you uh, how would you describe this year? <clears throat> well, I would I would uh, rank it right up there as a, amongst uh, one of the most challenging. Um, you know the the fact that we've had to, to spend uh, all this time, uh, you know, trying to you know reopen uh, trade agreements that were already negotiated, this China <clears throat> trade war and the tariffs uh, has had a you know a, a tremendous impact on on you know not only the ag sector but the U.S. economy uh, writ large. So. Uh, you know, we would like to, I think, put this uh, put 2019 in the rearview mirror here, and look forward to uh, you know working off of the of the one bright spot here of the approval of the U.S.-Japan agreement, secure uh, approval of the U.S.-MCA, which is clearly doable, uh, and uh, I think you know the next best thing that could happen is to to you know, divorce or separate, you know, agriculture uh, and the impact that it's been having on, on our sector from the broader, you know, Jap- uh, or China trade war. 
that we're uh, you know we you know now 20 months into. So you know if we can get you know this that trifecta of improvements, I think we can look uh, forward to a, a better 2020. Yeah, let's hope for a much better 2020 for sure. All right, Floyd, thanks for being with us. Okay, anytime. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Floyd Gabler. Director of Trade Policy and Biotechnology for the U.S. Grains Council, joining us here on AOA. The sounds of success vary from person to person. Success sounds like this to a credence soybean grower. Along with 43 new varieties this year, credence soybeans come with agronomic expertise from BASF. That means expert advisors who bring local insights on seed selection, management decisions, and crop protection options. Knowing the kind of success you're shooting for? That's smart. Talk to your authorized Credence retailer or local BASF seed advisor. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall for the American Ag Network. Grains are mixed with soybeans and wheat higher, while corn follows on the USDA export report. Producers are making their way back into fields in the northern plains following the Thanksgiving weekend blizzard. Progress will be even slower than before the blizzard as some wait for a freeze while others remain hamstrung by drier and storage capacity. Discount schedules remain incredibly punitive across the upper Midwest. As a result, unit train shippers seem hesitant to send out new crop supplies. Hog futures on the Board of Trade started 1.4% lower, this despite what was seen as a strong export sales report from the USDA for U.S. pork. 30,600 metric tons of new pork sales were reported for the week ending November 28th, with 10,900 tons heading to Mexico and another 10,300 tons heading to China. However, the USDA also reported that China canceled the purchase of 8,500 tons of pork for delivery in 2020. The USDA announced 245,000 tons of soybeans have been sold to an unknown destination. On the Board of Trade, January soybeans are trading six and a fraction of a cent higher at 884 and a quarter. March corn up a fraction at 378 and three quarters of a cent. March Minneapolis spring wheat up four and a quarter at 519 and a quarter. March Kansas City wheat up two and a half cent at 443. March Chicago wheat unchanged at 527 and a half cent. For livestock at the Merck, February live cattle trading. 47 cents higher at 124.65. January feeders down 42 at 140.35. February lean hogs trading 80 cents lower at 67.62. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invegor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as we wait for some decisions and announcements concerning the RFS, uh, we now are hearing that White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow is developing a new plan 
to bolster biofuel blending requirements. Joining us now to talk about it is Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Uh, how do you view this uh, this story that Larry Kudlow is working on a plan? Do you, you see that as a positive or not? Well, we do see it as a positive, Mike, and I, and I don't think uh, it's necessarily a new plan, and, and uh, Larry Kudlow has been involved in really all the White House uh, discussions around the RFS over the past few months. Um, I think what's happening here is is there's growing recognition inside the White House that EPA's proposal doesn't guarantee uh, that 15 billion gallons is truly going to be 15 billion gallons in, in 2020. Um, and so I, I think what's happening here is the White House is kind of revisiting uh, whether EPA's proposal truly lives up to the president's commitment. They're finding that it doesn't. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't say they're going back to the drawing board, but I, th- I think they are revisiting the, the idea of using the actual exemptions uh, to serve as the basis for projecting what exempted volumes would be moving forward. That's what we've asked uh, EPA to do. Uh, I think that's the only way to guarantee that 15 billion gallons truly results in 15 billion gallons of actual blending requirements next year. So we think that's what's happening, and, and yes, that would be good news if, in fact, uh, that's what's going on inside the White House today. Do you think any of those conversations at the White House include Andrew Wheeler from EPA? Yes, we do. We we, we think uh, that there is uh, uh, involvement from both EPA and USDA in these conversations uh, based on a few things we're hearing, uh, which, again, is good. I mean, USDA has been uh, recommending really for a few years now um, that if EPA is going to give out small refinery exemptions, it needs to reallocate uh, those exempted volumes and, and use the actual exemptions as the basis for doing that. Um, you know, obviously what EPA proposed in this supplemental proposal was, uh, we'll use the DOE recommendations uh, to inform our projection of exempted volumes. And, and the problem with that is they've never followed those recommendations when it comes time to actually decide the exemptions. Uh, and, the, and the DOE recommendations, as you know, Mike, have been about half of what EPA has actually exempted. So uh, we do think, uh, you know, the conversation has, has kind of reignited around the right way to do this, uh, and that's a good sign. So as we wait for an announcement, of course, we missed that November 30th deadline. Uh, I, I couldn't help but think of the number of deadlines missed during the Obama administration on this and how concerning that was. This seems like to be a, a good miss because uh, it meant they were working on hopefully something better. That's right. We we did see the Obama administration miss the November 30th deadline about every year uh, when it came uh, to setting the RFS requirements for the following year. Uh, you know, the, the Trump administration has been very good about meeting that deadline uh, every year, but then they've you know come back and undermined the volumes that they finalize on that uh, deadline with these small refinery exemptions. So, uh, yeah, we're not uh, terribly concerned about EPA missing the deadline this year if it means they're going to finalize a 2020 rule that that actually restores integrity to the program and and ensures that uh, the 15 billion gallon number that appears in the law is what is actually required to be blended. We're talking with Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. So do you think we get that announcement this year? I, I, I do think uh, we see that final rule before the end of the calendar year. 
Uh, now it may be, um, you know, the, the, the Friday before Christmas. It may be during the week between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, but I do think we're going to see that final rule uh, before the calendar turns over. Uh, and, and hopefully we can have this all behind us and we can start the new year with a very clear signal uh, and very clear direction from EPA on, on how enforcement of the RFS is going to play out in 2020. A number of senators have been weighing in on this as well. Yeah, they, they have. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, our, our kind of typical champion senators uh, weighing in on, on this issue and, and uh, you know, talking to the president directly about uh, this issue, speaking with Administrator Wheeler. Uh, but we, we've also seen a lot of interest uh, from, you know, some, some more nontraditional uh, folks on the Hill um, who, who, you know, who are also seeing the effects of these exemptions on, you know, advanced and cellulosic biofuel requirements and, and biodiesel and just the fact that uh, EPA is being allowed to undermine a Clean Air Act program, and that's a concern for really a lot of folks on the Hill, you know, even even coastal Democrats who, who don't necessarily um, always uh, see things uh, the same way that we do here in the Midwest. So uh, so it has been a positive, I think, and, and there has been a lot of attention, a lot of focus uh, on this issue coming from the Hill. Meanwhile, I don't think you and I have talked about this. Uh, you got some good news when the state of New York uh, is going to finally uh, open up to E15, and now we're getting word that uh, South Dakota is going to push to adopt E30. So you got some things happening there as far as uh, market access. It, you know, Mike, I think what gets lost in all the conversation around what's happening with the RFS and the federal level is there's a lot of really good things happening in the states, and you just highlighted two of them. Uh, the New York announcement was, was several years in the making, uh, we have been back and forth with the New York Department of Ag for, for a couple years to try and get that rulemaking uh, over the, the, the finish line. Uh, so very pleased to see that announcement uh, last week. Um, and, and, you know, we, we know that there's a number of retailers uh, in the state of New York who are ready to go and, and will be uh, very soon transitioning to, to E15. Uh, there's a couple retail chains in particular that are selling E15 today in other states, um, and, and have stores in New York, and they're ready. You know, they're familiar with E15. They know what needs to happen to uh, make that conversion, and, and so we're excited about that. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, the, the announcement uh, from Governor Noem in, in South Dakota uh, that they're going to continue to push E30 as the fuel of choice for their state fleets um, is great news. You know, we've always believed that really, you know, somewhere in that E25 to E30 range is, is the real sweet spot for ethanol. Mm-hmm. That's where you're getting the full benefit of, of the properties that ethanol brings to, to the fuel. Uh, and so that is an exciting development, and we'd like to see other states uh, move that direction eventually as well. Yeah, that's always kind of been I, – I, I've heard those conversations uh, for years and years that if really if you were picking that, as you said, the sweet spot, it would be in that E25, D30 range uh, as far as uh, ethanol use and, uh, uh, you know, mileage and efficiency yep. and, uh, just a lot of positives right that's absolutely right mike and there's been a lot of uh, research from the department of energy laboratories and universities and from the automakers themselves that shows when you put a you know a 25 to 30 percent ethanol blend in an optimized engine a, a higher compression ratio engine uh, that, that maybe has turbocharging um you know you you end up getting the same fuel economy uh, and efficiency 
that you're getting in a kind of you know today's ordinary conventional internal combustion engine that's using E10. So you don't see that fuel economy loss uh, that you do experience with with E85 in a, in a flex fuel vehicle. So you know we think that's sort of the holy grail for for ethanol's future is moving to that optimized combination of a high octane ethanol blend in the 20 to 30 percent ethanol range that's used in, a, in an engine that's that's uh, really set up and optimized to uh, take advantage of those properties. And finally, Jeff, uh, you've got plenty on your plate right now, but I'm going to ask you to look into the future a little bit here, and not to try to borrow more trouble, but uh, the challenge is ahead as there seems to be there's going to be a, a bigger and bigger push to go to battery-operated electric vehicles, whatever you want to call them, uh, where yep. do, if 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 the country eventually goes in that direction, where does that leave the ethanol industry? Well, first of all, Mike, I think that would be a, a very long transition. Even even the the biggest supporters of electric vehicles and, and battery technology um, understand that it's not something like that doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think what we've been trying to uh, educate policymakers and and the media and just general public about is there are ways uh, to, to get the same or better performance from liquid fuels in an internal combustion engine as you get with an electric vehicle. Everybody uh, looks at an electric vehicle as being the, the cleanest, most you know, climate-friendly uh, type of technology there is out there. Um, that's not exactly true. We, we can get the same level of greenhouse gas reduction and efficiency and performance um, out of a liquid fuel. Again, talking about a high-octane, low-carbon um, you know, 30% ethanol blend uh, that can compete very well with, with an electric vehicle in terms of its environmental performance and, and certainly can do so more economically uh, than electric vehicles. So we don't think the die has been cast yet, and, and uh, you know, we think there's uh, a lot of room to improve our liquid fuels today, and we think ethanol has a big role in doing that. It's just frustrating that in all the the green environmental talk that's going on, what you just yep. said gets overlooked, and uh, everybody wants to move on to something else without looking at what we have right now. That's that's exactly right, and and that's you know really what they use to justify uh, the the tax credits and and the fact that you know when you pay your electricity bill, uh, it's a little known secret that in in many cases uh, the utilities are taking a, a little bit of that and and using it to fund recharging stations and things like that. So there's a lot of policy that's kind of created an unlevel playing field, and and it's been justified by, well, these vehicles are better for the planet, they're better for the climate, and so this support is justified. We don't see it that way. We want a level playing field, and we believe that biofuels and, and ethanol specifically can compete with electric vehicles on environmental performance. Good to talk with you, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Mr. Chairman, as a corn root, I speak for millions of my kind who can't be here to defend themselves. Pests are stalking our stocks and undermining our roots. But we can elect to protect with a legacy of strength. Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment system increases nearby microbial activity to help us grow stronger. That's smart. Ladies and gentlemen, please, this is a corn roots movement. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Pancho Votivo 2.0 seed treatment. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. 
Now, back to Mike Adams. We're going to get some interesting outlook and analysis now for the beef industry moving into 2020. We're joined by Don Close, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. Don, thanks for joining us again. What do you see happening with uh, beef production in North America moving into 2020? Good morning, Mike. I I think for the for 2020, uh, domestic beef production is going to be very close to steady. Um, we look for our on-feed numbers, I think the, there's a very good chance USDA will revise that calf crop number down a little bit uh, in the Gen 1 inventory report just because of all the weather. That should uh, tighten up our available supplies of cattle outside of feed yards. It will provide some support to the feeder market and, and shorten up our fed cattle supply for the coming year. Don, we're, you're you're cutting in and out on us a little bit, so I don't know if you can uh, readjust uh, the phone there a little bit or not. We'll try to get a little better signal. But let's talk about All right. there, there, there are a lot of things going on here as far as global demand and supply. Uh, kind of give us uh, your thoughts on that. The uh, the global market is absolutely on fire. Uh, the, the quantities of protein that are going to China uh, is stimulating that market. Uh, Australian drought situation, we're looking for Australian beef production to be down 15% uh, this coming year because of weather. Uh, more of the New Zealand product is going to China. More Brazil products going to China. And uh, and that by, that is going to ultimately affect the U.S. market. And and how so? I mean, we're talking about kind of shifting a lot of things around here. So this this could even impact uh, the fast food industry here in the U.S., couldn't it? I think there's uh, I think there's really high probability of a changing fast food market. And really, what we're talking about is the quantity of manufacturing beef that goes to uh, the patty makers, the, the beef grinders. Uh, that Australian New Zealand product delivered to the U.S. is currently trading at a seventy to seventy-five cent uh, a pound premium to U.S. domestic ninety. As as our cow beef seasonally will peak here late November, early December, um, we shorten up our domestic supplies of lean beef. Uh, that market's really going to get exciting. When that occurs, that forces those grinders to go into uh, lean cuts from our fed beef supply that helps the fed beef cutout. So that's going to be a big feature throughout uh, 2020. I think there's high probability you'll see the, uh, the QSR restaurants First off, change up the, the mix of uh, value meals that they're offering, and I think there's a very high chance that they'll end up just across-the-board price increases on burgers for it's all over with. Hmm. We're talking with Don Close, Senior Animal Protein Analyst for Robo AgriFinance. What we're seeing overall globally, Don, right, is a huge demand for protein. We, we talk a lot about uh, the African swine fever situation in China, that certainly has a big impact, but just a, a growing demand globally for protein is uh, is a big story going into 2020. You're absolutely correct. And when we look at uh, the quantities of beef going into China, uh, going into Southeast Asia, as we see the emergence of that middle class. That increased beef demand was well underway before the ASS situation became so critical. So our view is that even when, and we're talking three to five, maybe as extreme of 10 years down the road before China gets the hog situation under control, 
But even with that aside, we're seeing more beef demand in that uh, in, across Asia uh, as that uh, economy builds, and you've got uh, more people's ability to buy beef in their diet. What are we seeing as far as domestic demand for beef here in the United States? It's been an it's been an incredible year, uh, and the interesting part about that. The higher the quality, the better the demand. So as our, our economy has the low unemployment rates, the higher income levels, uh, consumers have certainly been willing to spend some, some of that disposable income off beef. You know, our economy, is it going to get any better than it is today? I've, I've got doubts with that. I don't know that uh, we're really against recessionary fears, at least as of yet. But uh, at this time, domestic demand has been very, very good. Historically, beef, probably more than other uh, protein products, uh, is there's a connection with the economy, right? The better the economy, usually the better beef demand is. Hands down, that's true. Now, typically what we see when that economy tightens is beef demand will typically hold relatively stable. But as consumers' budgets tighten, what they're willing to do is trade down on the quality or the cuts of beef that they're buying. And so I'm, at this juncture, I'm not really concerned with, with domestic beef demand. But once the economy does tighten, I think we could see consumers gear down a, a degree of what items they're buying. So your thoughts for 2020 if, for a livestock producer? Good year coming up? I think it's a good year coming up, I, and, and I, th- I don't want to oversell the deal. I think there's still a lot of problems uh, through the ag economy altogether. But I think as we go into the year, from what our initial views for 2020 were and, and a lot of the frustrations that producers have had in 2019, I do believe 2020 will be a better year. Then we get some things fall into place on some trade deals. Uh, that could really help that even more. You know, you touched on a big one there, and the fact that we just had the uh, the ratification for on the uh, Japan trade agreement with the Japanese Parliament day before yesterday, that's really good news for the U.S. market, and it's probably uh, been under undersold or underreported that the fact that the U.S. is now on equal footing with the uh, UCTPP countries on tariffs that will really uh, support U.S. beef sales into Japan. Uh, we're still seeing incredible growth in South Korea, but uh, that, that part of our export yep. picture is looking brighter. That's a bright spot going into 2020 for sure. Thank you, Don. That's Don Close with Bravo AgriFinance. Thanks for joining us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Your local FS is member-owned, and that means when you buy our flagship brands like FS Envision and FS High Soy, you're actually buying seed from yourself. And you wouldn't sell yourself anything but the best, would you? In field after field, FS brands are out yielding the competition. Talk to your local FS crop specialist about Envision corn or high soy soybean seed today. At harvest, you'll be glad you did.